Wednesday, August 16th. Welcome to Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Coming up later in the hour, we are talking about board games and how they are becoming more and more popular since the pandemic. We hear from a tabletop games expert and the latest trends he found at the largest game convention in North America. Let us know about your favorite games by calling the studio. Our number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. Plus, we hear the next episode of Schooled about the landmark case that found public school funding in Pennsylvania is unconstitutional. And WHYY gun violence prevention reporter Sammy Kayola joins us to talk about a dramatic new statistic about suicides. But first, we have some recent updates from for you from a case about a police-involved fatal shooting that took place on Monday, Avi. Yes, and this is a developing story. We want to note that at the top. This is what we've been told by officials. On Monday, around 12.30 p.m., uh, a pair of police officers pulled over a 27-year-old man named Eddie Irizarry in North Philadelphia in the Kensington neighborhood. Officers say they saw him driving erratically. He started to go the wrong way down a one-way street, and two officers approached him in the vehicle. At first, Mm -hmm. what police told the press is that Mr. Irizarry, uh, after a failed traffic stop and a car chase, emerged from his car with a knife in his hand and lunged at police before an officer then shot him multiple times, killing him. On Tuesday night, the department released a very different narrative about what happened. They said Irizarry did not flee a traffic stop, never lunged at officers with a weapon, and was seated in his car when he was shot and killed by one of the officers. So, we still do not know exactly what changed and why. But we did get some answers today, um, just moments ago, at a press conference uh, held by Philadelphia Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw. And essentially what Outlaw said is that after the department saw body camera footage Mm -hmm. of the officers involved in this shooting, they had to revise how the incident was originally reported. And here is what Outlaw said. We're compiling all of our evidence. We're uh, looking for witnesses. We're looking for video uh, footage out in the neighborhoods. But the body-worn camera footage made it very clear that what we initially reported uh, was not actually what happened that of course begs the question how did they get the original Mm -hmm. information that we have less clarity on but police commissioner outlaw did confirm that the initial report from the scene was internal from Mm -hmm. law enforcement someone in law enforcement gave this account not a civilian bystander this is information that would have generated internally, not necessarily from someone that was a potential witness or out there on the street. So, the again, the original origin of where that came from internally, we're, we're backtracking to find out how that happened. Uh, I don't have the answer for you today, but uh, we believed, we had a reason to believe on good authority that that's what occurred based off of what was given to us at that time. There is a lot here, Cherry. Yeah. But first we want to say... That a man died, Eddie Irizarry, 27 years old. Mm -hmm. Our condolences to his family, that entire community. We also know that the narrative changed fairly dramatically from Monday to Tuesday. And and I just want to say, you know, the and just to be clear, the PPD has been in touch with the Irizarry family, Irizarry family, um, and we do. I reiterate those condolences. But 
my reaction is thank goodness for body cam footage um, and that the PPD was able to correct the false narrative as quickly as possible um, and to provide more transparency to the public on what actually happened during that shooting. But like Commissioner Outlaw has said, the investigation is still ongoing. I will be clear, they have not talked to the officer who discharged his or her weapon yep. at this point. So we don't know from their perspective yet what happened. They get 72 hours uh, because they can consult counsel um, in a situation like this. But one of the things that stuck with me is that Outlaw mentioned that they had made so many um, forward moves in trying to repair public trust between the PPD and the community. 50 steps, you know, 20 steps forward, she said, 50 steps back. That's what she feels like happens when an incident like this occurs. But um, the PPD has told the public today that they pledge transparency, that the narrative could still change as the investigation continues, and that we will get updates um, to the extent they do not compromise that investigation. Um, because currently they're trying to figure out did the officers follow internal policy? Did the officers follow the law? There are dual investigations going on right now. So we shall see. And we uh, just, lots of questions swirling um, right now. I just want to, sorry, I wanted to add in one more detail that we did learn today at the news conference. Um, so initially, the police said that Mr. Irizarry had a knife and In lunged. his hand, yeah. They now say two knives, quote, were observed inside the vehicle. No word. On whether weather. he had yeah. the weapons, whether they were in the front seat, the back seat, the trunk. One, they say, appeared to be a kitchen knife of some some kind. The other, a serrated folding knife. Yeah. Th these are the types of details that yeah. lead to tons of questions, and uh, we'll be looking for answers in the coming days. Yeah, and, and that investigation is ongoing. We will provide you updates. And speaking of ongoing investigations, um, we reported here that, you know, SEPTA had had several crashes over the last few weeks, and you know that the Transportation Authority, they're investigating the transit agency and has required mandatory safety training for its drivers, and that began this week. But there's another story that has not been talked about much, and that is the safety of the drivers. Um, the Transit Workers Union claims that over the past few years, SEPTA drivers have become increasingly the victim of verbal attacks and assaults. And you have to remember, this is not an easy job. SEPTA drivers operate their vehicles alone. They are protected only by plexiglass shields, and that's since the pandemic. But little else, they're vulnerable to angry outbursts and violence. And saliva is a common weapon. 242 times uh, off drivers have reported being spit on by passengers. Um, and that is just between 2017 through April of 2022. Um, the union says reports of verbal abuse have increased since the pandemic. And this is separate from physical assaults and other types of assaults. And um, I should note that the rate of assault could be a lot higher because the Federal Transit Administration only records incidents where operators sought medical attention. So we just don't know. And uh, by the way, this story was in the Inquirer by reporter Thomas Fitzgerald. Also in that story, Cherry noted that there is problems hiring. Yes, because of all of this. Vehicle yeah. operators and SEPTA has said that this could be a contributing factor to that. There are also other reasons, including mm -hmm. um, pay. pay that might not be competitive with what other types of transit companies pay. For instance, 
trucking companies. Um, those, those wages have gone up a lot in recent years, and perhaps SEPTA salaries have not kept pace. Um, but, but all of this sort of combines into a scenario um, where not a lot of people seemingly want to do the job um, because it doesn't pay great compared to other jobs like it, and they are possibly um, at risk. So, so something to watch as we address this entire issue of SEPTA operation and SEPTA safety. Yeah, and if you do to catch SEPTA, give your driver a thumbs up. Please. A little please. encouragement. Um, I want to transition now to our newsmaker interview for this segment. We often talk about gun violence and access to firearms in the context of street violence, homicides, mass shootings. But the tragically high number of guns in Philadelphia is contributing something else, and that's the teen suicide rate. For the first time, new preliminary CDC data shows the suicide rate for black teens has surpassed the rates for white teens. That is, uh, suicides by gun specifically. Here to tell us more about the data is Sammy Kayola, gun violence prevention reporter for WHYY News. Sammy, welcome to Studio 2. Hey, thanks for having me, Abby. So, Sammy, let's dig into this new data on suicide rates among black teens. Can you break it down for us and explain why this data point is so significant? This is the first time since the CDC started tracking gun suicides in 1968 that we've seen black teen suicides surpass white teen suicide with guns specifically. So gun suicides were always higher among white teens. Now they're higher among black teens. That's big. And it's in the context of the all-time gun suicide rate for all groups in the United States, uh, that being at a, at a high um, as of 2022, it's 2022 data. So that's at the highest it's been since the 90s, that overall gun suicide rate. And this uh, black teen suicide rate is surpassing the white teen suicide rate uh, for as long as we've been tracking gun suicides among teens. Now, when I say teens, I mean 10 to 19. 10 to 19 years Thank old. Thank you. Uh, naturally, Sammy, you wanted to know why. So what did your reporting reveal? Yeah, you know, I have spent a lot of time talking to young people about what's going on in the streets, how they access firearms, why teens are shooting each other. Uh, unfortunately, we've seen, you know, both fatal and non-fatal shootings on the rise here. But I even had missed the suicide element. And mm. it was only when I saw this data that I thought, wow, this is this is a whole part of the gun violence crisis that we're not talking about enough. And so I talked to a couple of teens. I talked to a couple of youth mentors. And what we're really seeing is kids are disconnected. Mm-hmm. They have lost uh, a lot of their mentors, uh, people that they used to interact with at school and their after-school activities. They've become so much more isolated. So they're afraid to go outside because they're afraid that they will be shot, right? And so their whole social structures have kind of collapsed. And, uh, you know, they're afraid for their lives. They're afraid of losing friends. A lot of them have lost friends. A lot of them have lost parents. Um, and they're really sort of in this crisis state. And we know that people don't make good decisions when they're in crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Especially young people whose brains are not form- fully formed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they are stressed. They are isolated. And many of them have access to firearms because uh, their friends have them or, or somebody in their household has them. We've seen a huge influx in firearms just in the city. Yeah. Now, you've spoken with one particular uh, person, a young man named Kaim Pokob. He's 18 years old. Tell us a little bit about his story. Yeah, so he actually said things were going really great for him uh, until March 2020 when his father was shot fatally on his street. And um, 
you know, he had his, had his mom. Um, but, you know, March 2020 was the beginning of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's suddenly dealing with this massive loss in his family and he's home from school. And uh, it, it hit him in ways he didn't expect. And so let's take a listen to him. Probably the main problem behind that is probably like stable homes. Like, you know, a lot of people rather missing a parent or both parents. And then others is probably just dumb decisions that people do, like people who who, uh, get peer pressured and stuff like that. And that was him actually talking about why he thinks um, some people, um, you know, lean towards suicide. But he also talked about his own mental health um, and sort of like like spiraling after the loss of his father. Yeah. Yeah, so he, um, you know, he didn't think sadness was a thing. Mm. So when he told me, like, his friends didn't talk about depression. Like, nobody ever talked about being sad. It was like a like a big a big no because you don't want to be seen as sad. I think um, maybe it, you're seen as weak or you're afraid you'll, your friends will bully you. Um, but when he lost his father, he he did just feel a deep sadness. And he didn't really know how to process it. It actually made him lash out, made him lash out at his mom, um, which he later told me he felt really bad about. And so he was he was grappling with a lot of anger. Yeah. Yeah. And it's taken him a few years to um, kind of come down from that. And he said what he does is he just gets away from other people. He just he just stays by himself and tries to listen to music or sleep. But um, I Clear think signs of depression, though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's depression. But but for him, it, it, it came out in a way that appears to be anger. Um, which, you know, I talked to a few mental health professionals for the story and they said we really, really have to look at that um, mm-hmm. with, with teenagers specifically because um, they will act out, they will act rashly um, when it's really the, the depression we have to treat. Well, and that is Sammy Kayola, WHYY's gun violence prevention reporter. You can read more of this story at WHYY.org. And speaking of your past work, Sammy, we just wanted to take a moment. Um, you were part of a, a great podcast series about Stop and Frisk, called Stop and Frisk, Revisit or Resist. It was just named yesterday um, as a national Edward uh, R. Murrow Award winner. We want to congratulate you and and highlight that work here while we have you on studio, too. Congratulations, Sammy. Thank you, and thanks to the Holds of HYY team on that. Wonderful. Absolutely. And just have to mention that Sammy also includes resources on her story, so be sure to check out WHYY.org. And if you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. Studio 2 will continue in just a minute with a conversation about board games right here on WHYY. This is Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. Cherry, I actually don't know this. You uh you a board game person? I kinda am. Kinda I actually, am. Yeah, because okay. I, I love the board game cafes and recently went one the went to one and Phil Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that. Okay. And I recently went to one and played some games with my niece. I actually love them. And they make a great date night too. <laughs> they make a great date. They night. do. It's Maybe we'll talk about that as yes. well. Uh, board game sales, you're not alone, went through the roof in mm-hmm. the last three years in particular. Think about, you know, during the pandemic, people locked inside. Board games are a way to get together with the people you're locked inside with. Or maybe you play over Zoom with some family. Um, get some human interaction. Uh, Matt Shoemaker is with us. He is a tabletop game publisher who's joining us on Studio 2 to talk about the latest in board games 
He is just returning, by the way, from the largest wow. tabletop game convention in North America called Gen Con. Matt, welcome in to Studio Two. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. And we want to hear from you at home, friends. Call us, 888-477-9499 to tell us your favorite board game or why you love to play. Again, that number is 888-477-9499. You can also email us at studio2 at org. So, Matt, I grew up playing board games, and then it kind of like I stopped and then over the past few years, I find myself going to these board game cafes, playing more and more and more. Can you talk about the trends in the popularity of board games and why this sudden resurgence? Yeah, so board games have been growing for quite a while, actually. Uh, you can go back to 9-11, actually, to find when they first yeah. started growing. So what happened was when the towers fell, people were looking for more ways to spend time with their family and friends and have fun and safety. Hmm. So board games, actually, around 2001, 2002, first became a billion-dollar industry. Wow. That slowly started growing, and by 2017, they were worth over $7 billion, and then it blew up in the pandemic, and they're now worth about $13 billion a year. So so why the pandemic? What happened? I mean, we speculated a little bit, but what mm-hmm. do you think happened? Yeah, so with the pandemic, I mean, I think a little bit is kind of what happened at 9-11. People were looking for safety, and they were looking for activities that they could do socially with people that they loved, either those friends or their families. And board games are a great way to do that. You can play and have an experience with somebody. You can be a little competitive, but, you know, it can be fun at the same time. And it really lets you to connect with people. Yeah. So the other thing with board games, particularly during the pandemic, is that uh, thanks to technology, there's a lot of ways that you can play them uh, remotely. There's software like Tabletop Simulator, Board Game Arena, and then some games have their own digital versions. So even though it's kind of like playing a video game, you're still getting that social interaction with all of the friends that you don't get with other types of entertainment. So I grew up playing stuff like Monopoly <laughs> and Life, you know. Yeah, Game of Life, yeah. Yeah, Boggle, you know, games like that. And and now we've seen a big shift in, in games and, it's, and, the, and just the variety. So let's talk about the basics. Like what makes a good board game good? Yeah, so there's three key things I would say that make a good board game. The first and most important is what a lot of board game players call an elegant game. So what this means is a game that has a lot of decision with few rules. So maybe Mm. uh, you have to play a card to do something, but it doesn't do just one thing. There's maybe 10, 12 different possibilities with that. This allows you to learn a game quickly. It's simple to pick up. But it does not uh, take too much headspace. There's not a lot of thinking involved with just the rules and how to actually play the game. So that's elegance. That's elegance. Okay. Yeah. The next thing. That's number one. That's number one. The next thing I would say is it needs to be uh, a good tactile experience. Board games are a physical medium. People enjoy how they look like. They enjoy the physical feel of wooden and metal and plastic pieces in their hands. They like the little click-clack they make when you put them down on the table. And people just enjoy having that kind of physical experience with interacting with games. And then is there a third you mentioned? Yeah, there is a third. Um, The third one is... I'm sorry, I just totally blanked. We're gonna oh, get it's okay. We'll, yeah. it's all, we'll get it we're later. That's okay. okay. Sorry about that. There's yeah. a third mystery one. It's kind of like <laughs> it's kind of like playing a game here. Um, so uh, you just came back from this this big conference, Gen Con. Uh, it's in Indiana. Is yes, it's right? in Indianapolis. It's in Indianapolis, Indiana. So um, tell me what is coming in the world of board games. What are you picking up on? What are the trends here? Yeah. So there's a lot of big things that happened at Gen Con this year. Uh, probably the first and most obvious for people who are attending was this new game called Lorcana which is a collectible card game by uh, Ravensburger and Disney. 
oh, Disney. Yeah, so that's, that's a big player. Disney was the big player. Yeah. So I mean, themed games with IPs are getting big in general. But people were going nuts for this game. They were waiting in line for up to sixteen hours to be able to just buy a couple packs of cards to be able to play this game. Is this like a Magic the Gathering type of game? Yeah, it's very simple. I tried it at the convention. It's like a, a more simple version of Magic the Gathering. Okay. It's something you can get into uh, with your kids, I think, pretty easily and play like that. Why do you think a game like that is picking up steam? Uh, I think a lot of it is the IP behind it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Disney was a big push. If you talk to some people at the convention that didn't care about Larkana, they were like, why is this here? This is driving us crazy. <laughs> I don't want to see this kind of thing at my board game convention, but it's undeniable. People were going nuts for it. Yeah. I mean, they love Disney, and board games are bigger. They're looking for more ways to interact with their IPs in ways that they enjoy. Can I just ask on that, though? Because in my mind, and Cherry alluded to this a bit earlier, I feel like I see more diversity in board games today, and I see more indie, I don't know if they're actually indie board games, but they kind of look or feel like indie board games than when I grew up. I have no idea if that's true, but I feel like I go to a gathering of friends and they're talking about something called you know, Wingspan or something like that. And when I was a kid, we were all just playing Monopoly and Sorry. So I was surprised (laughs) to hear you say like, oh, this big Disney property is hot, because in my mind, I'm thinking, no, the, the market's more fractured. We're moving away from the big guys. Well, it really depends what you're looking at. I mean, you're right. There's more board games getting produced every year. Uh, BoardGameGeek.com, which is a great place for getting information about games, has well over 100,000 board games listed. And you are right that there's more indie games as well. A company in 2009 called Kickstarter.com started, and board game companies really latched onto that. So you got more individual creators making games, and there's less of a hurdle to publication these days. So there's a lot more people that are getting their games made and out of the table, which is diversifying the types of games you can play and find. And if you just tuned in, we are speaking with Matt Shoemaker. Uh, He is a board game expert, <laughs> we're calling you that, and we want to hear from you. Do you have a favorite board game? What? Why do you like to play? Call us at 888-477-9499. You can also email us your question or comment at studio2 at whyy.org. Um, I want to talk about the most popular games that you're seeing. You mentioned one from Disney, but are there like other games? And, and can you give more specifics on why they love, why people love them besides just the marketing? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a lot of games out there that people just like. Uh, you mentioned Wingspan earlier. That's one that's very popular. Uh, it won the Spiel the Jahres Award in 2019. Uh, that's a, it's a German award. A lot of these games have a German background to them. So huh. they were designed. Um, and uh, this game is about birding, of all things. <laughs> so I played it. It's it's. It, it, I don't know if it was quite elegant enough for me, but I, I did enjoy it. Meaning, it was. Were there a lot of instructions? I thought for it was this? a bit complicated. What do you think about Wingspan? I mean, the the award it won was specifically the Spiel des Jahres for more for enthusiast games. So that's games okay. that are generally more complicated. But on the complication scale, I would actually call it pretty low. Oh, gosh, there, there's, there's, <laughs> that says something about me, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You play a lot of games, you get used to you get these more complex ones. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it. There's a lot of birds. It's got like 500 cards in the game. There's lots of little eggs you pick up and put around and you're basically just eggs. collecting birds like you're uh, like you're a bird watcher is kind of what the game is simulating mm-hmm. i want to bring in a clip here from uh, parks and recreation talking about complex games here this is the character ben wyatt played by adam scott he is the main character leslie nope's boyfriend and he creates a very complicated table game called the cones of dunshire then you roll three dice to see how many dice you roll with oh 16 perfect lots of choices okay each turn goes roll buy Action. I mean, obviously, this would be much taller in the real game. But the corporal can veto. This should be green, too. How did this happen? Are the cones a metaphor? Well, yes and no. What, what, what is this called again? 
The Cones of Dunshire. And, uh, and I had a quick follow-up to you about these games, and, and it kind of ties into this clip because, um, and, and, and this email from Judd who says the classics remain relevant for a reason, straightforward and fun. Uh, these niche indie games are intimidating to the average person trying to put on a game night. You hear that clip, right? Yeah. To me, I liked games that were just simple. And now the games include apps and all sorts of things. And they're moving in a whole other direction and less elegant, so to speak. But people still love them. Yeah. I mean, there's still games that are coming out that are very elegant. I mean, you look at these games got popular for a reason. Like if you look at back in uh, 2004, the game Ticket to Ride came out. It's a very simple, straightforward, elegant game about building railway routes. Um, people love that game. It's a great gateway to get into this. And then you've got more complicated games like one that was hot at Gen Con this year, um, Thunder Road Vendetta, hmm. which is basically a remake of an 80s game that was very Mad Max style. Your car is trying to blow each other up. It's a lot more complicated. You've also got games. Uh, one that was very big right now is called Gloomhaven. comes in a box that's about four shoeboxes in size. It's extremely complicated, but it's not something that's for the faint of heart at all. Um, but there's still plenty of games, party games. There's a, one called Blood of the Cock Tower. It's for 5 to 20 people where you're basically just doing social deduction, trying to figure out who are these demons in this mm. town before they can Ooh. kill everyone that's there. So there's definitely a lot of games that are still being made that are on the more simple end of things. I want to bring in an email on that point, an email from Julie, um, who, who loves social deception games because I love the process of using logic and social cues to figure everything out. Julie also said in this email, I find this very interesting. I've been loving board games and YouTube videos of other people <laughs> playing board games since the pandemic began. You mentioned how Kickstarter has made it easier for grassroots you know, board makers, uh, game makers to get their products to market. But also the internet has changed the way the community of board game enthusiasts interact. What are you seeing on that front? Yeah, so there's a lot of ways that the internet is really helping spread and facilitate this growth in board games. One part of it is I mentioned earlier about elegant games needing simple rules. Well, one way to, to get around that is by having other people teach you how to play the game through a video. So there's a lot of people that they get a rule book, they just throw it away, they go yeah. on YouTube, they find something, and they learn how to play that way. Um, the internet has also helped just facilitate and spread uh, games in general by through advertising for these uh, games on Kickstarter and other properties. Um, as well as just doing more game reviews, informing people what and how they want to buy their games and spend their board game dollars. Can we talk about the, the board games that include technology like apps with they have QR codes and all those things? Um, my niece loves the games where you can be in a, a detective and figure things out and look at a scene on your phone. Hmm. Um, and they're they're really advanced and really, really cool. Um, but there are also there's some downsides to some of those games. Yeah, there definitely are. I mean, the, the good thing about them is that you can make a complex game and help people learn it easier. That's one reason they're popular. But the downside is they don't last forever. One great thing about a board game is you can pick up a 50-year-old game and play it off the shelf. It's just fine. Some of these games, they don't last. For example, a game came out a little less than a decade ago called Gollum Arcana. You needed to use a little barcode reader pen on it. It hooked up to an app. People loved it. It was a great game. It did well. About three, four years later, the publisher decides they aren't going to do it anymore. They stop supporting the app. So like, this whole game is junk. You can't play it anymore no mm. matter how much you want to. And it probably cost you a pretty penny. At oh, yeah. That. Yes, yeah. it did. Yeah. Um, I want to bring in an email here from Jess who says, We like One Night Ultimate Ooh. Werewolf because it's easy and fast for big groups. Well, my, my last name's Wolfman, so I love that. I don't actually know if that's real in the game. Yep. One night, it is. One yep. night ultimate werewolf. Okay, we're not, not yanking our chain there. Um, I, wanted you to, <laughs> I wanted you to recommend a, yes. a favorite party game. 
because because that's a whole genre that I feel like that's a huge part of gaming culture for the average person. A game you play at a gathering with sort of friends and maybe even a few strangers. Yeah, so I would say there's two types of party games that are really good. There's a social deduction, like the One Night Ultimate Werewolf, and I would also put the Blood on the Clock Tower I mentioned yep. earlier in that category. Um, other party games there they don't requ- for people who are maybe a little shyer. Uh, a game called Sushi Go is quite entertaining. I love Sushi Go. Yeah, That's it's a, a great, great game. game. Sushi yeah. Go. And I highly recommend. There's a question from Jane who emailed us um, who says, I find it interesting how every family seems to have their own rules for Monopoly. And I'll throw in Uno, too, because oh, the rules Uno are rules. different depending on whose house. She says, do game developers <laughs> change the rules over the years? Uh, that does happen a little bit. I mean, this isn't a board game per se, but if you know, like Dungeons and Dragons, they're currently mm-hmm. working on their sixth edition. So that's six times they've done a major revision of the rules. This happens with board games too sometimes, where they'll they'll remake games, they'll republish them, they'll maybe come out with a tenth anniversary edition, where they'll take in recommendations or things that just didn't work and fix them. If I were to go looking for a game or for my family, I said, hey, we want to play a board game. Is there a list of things you say that I should say this is how you choose one that would work for your the folks in your network or your crew of folks? Yeah, I mean, first thing I would want to do is figure out how competitive they are. Mm-hmm. Like, is this, is this going to be a fun time or is someone going to get really upset if they lose <laughs> the game? And then based on that, I might want to choose what type of game I want to go. Um, I mean, there's co- there's cooperative games are popular this this day and age, and so if there's a, a game you really want to play with your friends where you win together or you lose together, that can be a great experience to have with them. Um, if you do have people that are really competitive, um, you can go out and find games. There's there's a two main distinctions in the board game world. One is called the Euro game, and the other is called kind of derogatorily Ameritrash. Um, <laughs> of course. Yeah, and those games, the Ameritrash games, they're highly competitive. They're overproduced. There's usually buckets of dice that you're throwing and rolling, and you're just really looking to kind of, you know, cream your opponents is what you're going after there and the euro games are the euro games are these games came out of germany which is why they're called euro games um they actually got developed out of a post-world war ii when uh, german society went from militaristic to be more cooperative and uh, work together more so these games really came into fruition in the 1990s and they're really kind of what's behind the big board game push now the games uh, are not directly competitive you're still they're competitive games oftentimes but instead of, you know, let's say attacking somebody or destroying them with your army, you're more maybe blocking them from a road or maybe stealing some of their sheep from a farm. It's, it's a lot less hostile. I like that. A good pacifist game. Well, yeah. we'll have yeah. to leave it there. We didn't even get a chance to talk about board game cafes. Maybe next time. Uh, I know. Matt Shoemaker is the head of the Loretta C. Duckworth Scholars Studio at Temple University and a tabletop game publisher. Matt, thank you so much for joining us on Studio 2. Yeah, thank you for having me. Coming up on Studio 2, WHYY's Schooled Podcast takes us to court in the Pennsylvania fight for a fair school funding formula. Stick with us. Welcome back to Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. And now we are going to continue our Schooled series, the WHYY production that this year examined the landmark court case that ruled Pennsylvania's school funding system is unconstitutional. Yesterday, we heard episode one, which took us into two different high schools to show the inequities in school funding. And today, host Aubrey Uhas is taking us into the courtroom. Now, Pennsylvania's constitution says the legislature has to provide a, quote, thorough and efficient education for all students. But what does that really mean? And that is what lawyers on each side of the case would argue over for nearly four months. It would be up to a judge to decide 
who was right. Coming up, you'll meet the people who testified and hear what they said on the stand. We'll walk you through the twists and turns in Pennsylvania's school funding trial, a case with the power to permanently transform the state's education system. On the morning of November 12th, 2021, hundreds of people gathered on the steps of Pennsylvania's Capitol building to rally for more equitable funding for public schools. We have the right to hold the leaders accountable to create our future professionals capable of moving PA ahead. Because right down the street, a landmark lawsuit decades in the making was finally being heard in the state's Commonwealth Court. Many people rang cowbells that day, which had become a symbol of their fight. Yes, my throat official bell. That's what I said. Ring my bell. Yes. Remember Sheila Armstrong? She's the mom whose son's school in Philadelphia closed due to budget cuts. Sheila was one of several parents to sue the state for more funding, along with six school districts and two statewide advocacy groups. Throughout the lawsuit, Sheila and the other advocates would ring these red cowbells at press conferences and outside courtrooms to remind people what they were fighting for, a system of thorough and efficient schools. Pennsylvania's education clause says the legislature, quote, shall provide for the maintenance and support of a thorough and efficient system of public education to serve the needs of the Commonwealth. So the legislature has to pay for public education. That part is clear. But what do they have to pay for exactly? What does thorough and efficient really mean? That's what lawyers on each side of the case would argue over during the trial. It would be up to the judge to decide who was right. The architect of the case, the man responsible for seeing these parties in court, was Michael Churchill, a lawyer with a long history of taking the state to task on issues in public education. His goal was to bring together schools from across the state to challenge Pennsylvania's funding system. But he had a hard time getting them to sign on. Many uh, districts were reluctant to uh, take on Harrisburg. That's not the culture in Pennsylvania. (laughs) You're going to wave the flag, say, hey, we're poor, and things aren't going great here. Not easy, but we didn't see any other way. That's Jennifer Hoff. And the we she's referring to is William Penn. Jennifer is a longtime member of the district school board. She knew what they were up against, but she was determined. We were definitely going to do it. We knew that we had a fight for ourselves or it wasn't going to happen. More than two decades ago, Jennifer got involved in public education policy when she moved to Lansdowne, one of six boroughs covered by the William Penn School District. Jennifer's oldest child was a toddler then, and she was visibly pregnant with twins. One day she was working in the yard when... Someone comes up and they're like, oh, really nice house, welcome to the neighborhood, and the schools are really bad. (laughs) I was like, all right, here we go. Jennifer wasn't faced. She comes from a family of teachers and says her mom taught in a quote-unquote bad school district. But she wanted to know what her new neighbor meant, so she started going to school board meetings. She says not much has changed between now and then. Same issues, interestingly enough. The big one being the district didn't have enough money, despite having one of the highest property tax rates in the state. When her kids were old enough, Jennifer enrolled them in William Penn schools. A few years after that, she ran for a seat on the school board and won. From the very beginning, she had one goal, to fix the money. I always said that I would stay till we got funded. And we always knew that the only path forward was another lawsuit. Jennifer had watched the lawyer Michael Churchill's first attempt to sue the state. So when he came knocking, she was ready. Ultimately, the district agreed to sign on as the lawsuit's lead plaintiff. Who are these guys? What are they doing? Like, why are they complaining? Like, 
we're suing PDE. PDE, the Pennsylvania Department of Education. The suit also named state officials, including the governor at the time, Tom Wolfe, the Secretary of Education, and leaders of the legislature. It accused them of violating Pennsylvania's constitution, which says the state legislature has to provide for the maintenance and support of a thorough and efficient system of public schools. One of the witnesses was William Penn kindergarten teacher Nicole Miller. She was a student in the district and has now been teaching there for more than 20 years. When Nicole took the stand, she talked a lot about what happens inside her classroom. You try to take them on a journey, you know, a picture walk, a mind movie, like to lay it out, like what this looks like in real time, you know, what this looks like from day to day, and you hope that they can see. But she feels like the other side didn't see the picture she was trying to paint. I left in tears. It's unbelievable what the other side would say, you know, like how can you argue this? Nicole felt like the lawyers for the state were trying to blame her students for not achieving. It sounded like I was hearing that children who have learning gaps or, you know, children in districts that look like ours are unmotivated. Not one of my kindergartners is unmotivated. They want to come to school. We spent a morning in Nicole's classroom at Evans Elementary in Yaden, just outside of Philadelphia. Nicole says when her students struggle, it's not because they lack motivation, but because they don't have the resources they need to succeed. I'd want to storm out the room too. It's hot, you know, we're packed in, I'm not getting what I need, so I want to get out. In a typical year, Nicole has about 25 students in her class, and no other adults. It's just me. Many of her students don't attend preschool, and most live in poverty, which research says makes them less likely to build important early literacy skills at home. So when they start the school year, Nicole says their skills are all over the place. While some students may have started reading sight words, others don't know the difference between a number, a letter, and a shape. By the end of kindergarten, I want everybody to be a reader. I want everybody to be a writer. You know, I, I, I want them to feel successful. I want them to feel like they love to come to school. They love to learn. But getting students the support they need can be difficult when she's the only adult in the room. Like, for example, during our um, reading block, we do have small group instruction. So during that time, I'm pulling at the red table over there. Like Everybody else is expected to be independent and doing independent work. And they're kindergartners. But they're five. And so they're not ready to be independent learners. While Nicole tries to help a new student, other students hover, waiting to show her the sentences they've written. In the middle of all this, a student who is clearly not a kindergartner walks into Nicole's classroom holding a pink slip of paper. The fifth grader has been sent out of his class for misbehavior to Nicole, who's one of the school's two lead teachers. I could just say, go sit at the red table and, you know, take your time out and do your work and then go. But I like to talk to him at least to find out what's going on. Well, okay, but then you got all fours. But yes, it's in the middle of, of teaching kindergarten. This level of multitasking is both impressive and troubling. Nicole says the school's one counselor is often busy. And the same is true for the principal. So she steps in to help. I don't think that I'm necessarily equipped to be like a counselor or to intervene in that way. That's just my skill set, but I, I try. In the courtroom, Nicole talked about how increased funding could help improve student outcomes at her school. But she felt like her words fell on deaf ears. 
I feel like the other side maybe just doesn't have a clue. Just really doesn't get it. They just really don't see it. It's not their lived experience. Only one student took the stand, Michael Horvath, who by the time the case finally made it to trial was a former student since he'd graduated from high school. Michael was in the eighth grade when the lawsuit was filed. His mom, Tracy, signed him on. I really wanted to be involved. I didn't realize that my son was going to be so involved. Yeah, I don't think I really ever realized I was as big of a part of it. Uh, I don't think he was really very pleased with me. (laughs) The two live in Wilkes-Barre in northeastern Pennsylvania on the banks of the Susquehanna River. Like all of the plaintiff districts, Wilkes-Barre is property poor and struggles financially. So much so that in the years after the Great Recession, it took extreme measures to lower its expenses and reduce its growing deficit. It cut art classes and closed libraries, furloughed teachers, and fired support staff. All of these cuts had consequences for Michael. I never had to write a research paper in high school before, where I had to cite references and uh, have in-text citations. Michael says he struggled after high school and dropped out of college because he was unprepared. When he took the stand, he felt like lawyers for the state weren't sympathetic. I like, felt so attacked with some of the questions like I just said to the dude, like, you wouldn't send your kid to my school. Michael says it felt like the lawyers tried to make it seem like it was his fault, that he didn't learn what he needed to in high school. They combed through his grades, test scores, and absences. They were able to bring up, like, emails between my mom and teachers and, like, thinking I was worried about, like, only girls in football. And just, like, little things like that. They were asking me questions as if they never went to high school before. That doesn't change the fact that his school was falling apart, Michael says. Or that the library was closed and he had to share one guidance counselor with 700 other kids. If calling witnesses from schools was the first part of Michael's strategy, the second was to try and turn the other side's witnesses against them. Just about every good trial lawyer I know has always preached that um, anything you can prove out of your opponent's mouth and uh, their documents is that much stronger and that much better. So we looked at the state's own research. A key piece of evidence was a costing out study commissioned by the legislature that looked at how much money the state needed to spend to fully fund its schools. The report showed the state would need to spend $4.6 billion to close the gap. Out of the state's 500 school districts, just 30 were spending enough money. They basically admitted the very problems that we were describing in our lawsuit. Michael says it was up to the state to prove that schools did have enough resources, and therefore enough money. It was a chance for the other side to try and say, yes, you do. Uh, but, you know, uh, they, they had no witness that was able to say that. You know, you can't spend your way to a solution here. That's Jason Willis, one of the state's expert witnesses. Of everyone we reached out to from the defense, Jason was the only one who would speak to us. He's a director at a California-based education research group and has advised a number of state and school leaders on finance issues. It does matter how much you're investing in the system, but often it matters almost as much, if not more, how you are spending those resources that you do have to support those students. This has been the other side's argument for a really long time. Sure, money matters. But what matters more is how schools spend the money they do have. It's the idea that the amount of money isn't the problem. It's school leadership, or bad teachers, or poor spending decisions. Another lawyer for the defense made arguments that went beyond money and dollars spent per student. 
arguments that questioned the very role of education. The lawyer repeatedly asked one superintendent why the state's academic standards mattered for all students. Quote, what use would a carpenter have for biology? The lawyer asked. What use would someone on the McDonald's career track have for Algebra 1? He continued, quote, the question in my mind is thorough and efficient to what end? To serve the needs of the Commonwealth? Lest we forget, the Commonwealth has many needs. There's a need for retail workers, for people who know how to flip a pizza crust. Philadelphia mom Sheila Armstrong was put off. <laughs> I thought that statement very rude and ignorant. I honestly did. So to sit there and just go on under assumption that our schools don't need to be great because we need burger flippers, that's, that's, that's laughable to me. Because we need that burger flipper to still raise their family. That's the part Sheila says the defense was missing. The people that you're trying to write off is still part of our society. The arguments, the testimonials, the tension, it went on. After nearly four months, the trial finally came to a close. Both sides walked out of the courtroom, and then they waited. No one knew when the decision would come. It took nearly a year. And then... Pennsylvania school funding system violates the state constitution. That is the ruling of a Commonwealth Court judge who found that the system lacked... I was at work. Yeah, I was at work. I was at the store. Fortunately, it was on a Tuesday because one of the days of the week that everybody is in the office. The ruling dropped on a cold afternoon in February. The court had decided in the plaintiff's favor. Pennsylvania's school funding system was inadequate and inequitable to the point that it violated the state's constitution. And I was like, we won? It's over? Oh, my God. And I started jumping up and down in the supermarket. And I was like, we won the case. We won the case. And stuff like that. You're shouting this out loud? I'm, I'm just, because Skylar down the aisle, because we in the supermarket. We won. And I'm all hyped. And it was so funny, because, hey, we won. Case won. People around. And a lady said, well, how much did we win? And I said, oh, it ain't that type of case. Ain't that type of case. The judge deemed the state's current system unconstitutional. But she didn't tell them how to fix it. She didn't tell them how much money to add or how to distribute it. That would be left to the state. But the court did take away the state's excuses for why they shouldn't or couldn't do it. In its nearly 800-page ruling, the court said there was, quote, no rational basis, unquote, for the funding gaps that existed between low- and high-wealth schools something the state's funding system had created. The thing that was transformative about this court's opinion when you come down to the bottom line is it said that uh, the Constitution requires you to actually figure out what is needed and provide what is needed. Meaning it's not enough just to try to fund schools fairly. You have to actually do it. All students have to get what they need. And it's the legislature's duty to make sure that happens. For the plaintiffs and their lawyers... The ruling was a massive relief. This opinion, <laughs> 788 page opinion, is replete with information about what is not there. Uh, and it shouldn't be that hard to figure out how do you put it there. But never underestimate the power of politics. While the court had ruled in the school's favor, the fight for fair funding is far from over, since it's now up to the legislature to make things right. I'm not saying I'm not happy. I just wish there was more. Uh... More pressure on the state, I guess, to take action now. You wonder, like, how is this going to turn out? Like, this has been going on for so many years. Is, is this finally our moment? Is it? 
courts have issued similar rulings in other states. And if there's one clear takeaway, it's that change doesn't happen overnight. New Jersey reached a ruling like Pennsylvania's in the 1980s. The ruling and subsequent returns to the court reshaped New Jersey's public school system, steering millions of dollars to some of the state's poorest districts. But it took decades. You, you lost two generations of students in that time? Yeah, that can't happen here. We can't sit here and admire the problem, right? Like, since 2014. Talk, 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 talk. Like, no, stop talking, do something. While the trial may be over in Pennsylvania, the real fight is just beginning. First of all, we haven't solved the problem. We've had a, a court declare that uh, we need to fix the problem. When we fix it, we can be comfortable. That's coming up on Schooled. We will hear the final episode of Schooled tomorrow right here during Studio 2. Until then, our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer. For more of our show, you can head on over to whyy.org Studio 2 or download us wherever you get your podcast. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Cherry Gray. And I'm Avi Wolfman, Aaron. Thank you for joining us.